Welcome to Our Hit House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. And this week, Jasmine will be speaking with Hartmut Kiewert. He is an artist who is creating some of these really, really amazing visionary paintings, not of how bad things are, but of what the world could look like if people actually did love animals and acted like they loved animals. And I I know you love, always love interviewing artists, and this was no exception, right? Yeah, totally. And Hartmut is an activist through and through. We'll link to some of his work in the show notes. It is kind of challenging sometimes to do an audio interview with a visual artist, but I actually find that intriguing. (laughs) And I think Hartmut did an incredible job of really getting across what he's doing. And I absolutely love his work. Just in case people do want to take a look at it while they're listening to the interview, uh, I think we should mention his his website here. It's the English website is en.hartmutkiewert.de. And so that way you can see these extraordinary paintings at the same time he's talking about them. So it's again, just to reiterate, it's en.hartmutkiewert.de. So yeah, that's a great idea. Unless you're driving, in which case, don't open it. Uh, All right. So before we get to a few things that we wanted to chat about, I wanted to share something that I received over email. And it just sounded so cool that we were like, yeah, we have to talk about this. There is a new vegan media market, and it is basically the world's first vegan freelancer marketplace. And they say that it was put together in an effort to connect vegan freelance workers with vegan business owners. So I'll read a bit about it here. The marketplace currently lists a variety of vegan freelancers, including photographers, graphic designers, social media managers, web developers, and virtual assistants. Vegan Media Market is the brainchild of vegan entrepreneur Sam Tucker, founder of the fully vegan digital marketing agency, Creative Compass. The idea for the marketplace came to Tucker after he noticed a lack of vegan freelancers and businesses on platforms like Fiverr, Upwork, and Guru. The marketplace is free to use for vegan businesses and only charges vegan freelancers half as much commission as sites like Fiverr and Upwork. Freelancers can post listings for free, and vegan business owners can browse through those listings at veganmediamarket.com. I love that. That Such is a so great cool. idea. Yeah, I'm definitely going to be browsing around on that. I happen to use Fiverr a lot for little things here and there, and I would much prefer to be supporting a vegan market. So hooray, very excited about that. Another exciting thing is that the Animal Law Podcast is going up this coming week. Woohoo! Love that. Are you excited? Yeah, I'm totally excited. I mentioned this last week, but of course, the case that we have to be discussing at this point is the case that is in the Supreme Court, and it was argued very recently, and it's National Pork Producers versus Ross. And and I, my guest is Michael Dorff, who is a constitutional law professor at Cornell, and has been on the podcast before, of course. And this case turns out to be much more, uh, as so, so often they do, much more complex than I had originally imagined. And I saw more reasons why perhaps the court accepted it, which I, I think came as a shock to everybody. So if you're interested in, in whether states can actually regulate the treatment of animals whose bodies are sold in their state, yeah, check it out. 
Very cool. We'll definitely be keeping people up to speed on the Animal Law Podcast. So make sure you're following us on social media at Our Hen House. So let's talk about protesting from soup to nuts, or should I say <laughs> soup to milk? What's going on in the world of protesting? This is sort of interesting. Well, I, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people have, have heard these stories. I just thought it was an interesting topic of conversation. There was the soup protest, which had to do, this is a climate protest, two climate activists in the UK at the and the National Gallery, you know, a major, major museum, took a can of tomato soup and threw it on a, a painting by Vincent van Gogh, Sunflowers, a very, very famous painting. Even I am familiar with it. Just pandemonium broke out on social media. The horror that people expressed and the, the debates back and forth. Was this a good protest? Was it a bad protest? It, was it effective in bringing attention? Obviously it was. But did it just give, give climate protesters a bad name? Is this horrifying? Like all of this stuff. And I have, you know, my own personal attitudes about every single one of these questions. But I think one point that got lost until well into the discussion is that the painting was not harmed. The, the painting, as only makes sense, is behind glass. You know, they don't just like hang these things out there waiting for people to throw soup on them. So uh, the, the protesters also glued their hands to the wall, which, you know, is a very popular form of protest right now, causing problems for, for you know, whoever has to get them out of there. So I have my attitudes. I'm sure you have your attitudes, but it just kind of drives me crazy how so many people have opinions and attitudes and emotions about about protest tactics. And, you know, they're not protesting about climate every day. <laughs> like the, the protest tactics sometimes seem to be the only thing that get any attention and everybody has to express their opinion and everybody has to feel personally responsible like for what these protesters do. And it's just something that's always driven me crazy. I mean, certainly the same thing has, has, has happened in the animal rights movement since time immemorial. Everybody's constantly opining on whether this is the right approach or that is the right approach. And obviously... There are a lot of different approaches. Some work for some people, some work for other people, some work in negative ways, some work in positive. Like, who knows? I don't know. So I just thought uh, this particular firestorm that broke out was kind of annoying. I don't know. What do you think? Well, you're reminding me of something Zoe said when I interviewed Zoe and Shearston just last week. She was speaking to exactly this point, which is that there are a whole lot of people being extremely critical who are just like not doing anything else other than criticizing. And so I, I mostly completely agree with you. I, I do. Nothing you said is something I disagree with. The only like little slice of hmm that I have is that I wonder if there is any opportunity for constructive criticism of tactics or if, if it's all just kind of a waste. What do you think? Obviously, I think that's right. Like I said, I have my opinions. And tactics are something that we should be discussing all the time and trying to figure out what works and what doesn't work, even though we never seem to come to any conclusions about anything. I agree that it does present the opportunity for that discussion. I just get upset when I see that discussion just replacing for so many people discussion of the actual problem. Like that we're not going to have art anymore if all of the museums are underwater, that sort of thing. Uh, but, you know, I guess now I'm expressing my my opinions. Well, that's what I was going to say is also ironic, right? That like 
we're both of us like, oh, why do people always have to express their opinions? Here's mine. You know, <laughs> I, I, I find that like I do that often. Like, oh my god, do you know that new girl? She's such a gossip. Like, uh, <laughs> so well, but I think that you know, in my situation particularly, it is a little different because I am right about everything. Uh, That's right. the okay. difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there are some other liquids spilling in the world. Uh, don't cry over spilled milk, or maybe do. Yeah, this was another protest. It did not get quite the play that the Vincent van Gogh painting did, obviously. But also in, in, happening in the UK and, and by a group called uh, Animal Rebellion, which, you know, takes a particularly animal-focused look at, at, uh, at both the climate activism and just about what's happening to animals. They are going into supermarkets and taking uh, cow's milk out of the coolers where they're kept and and pouring it on the ground. And oh, my God, <laughs> they really did piss people off. And oh, my God, the, the talk about how awful it is that people will have to clean up after them. You know, by people who are really, really concerned with working conditions of the of the poor, I'm sure. The idea that they're wasting food that people could eat. And these things, I guess, are true. There's truth in them. But they're ignore, so completely ignoring the, the bigger picture of how unbelievably much milk the dairy industry wastes. I mean, they actually deliberately pour milk out in order to keep the prices steady, like millions and millions of gallons. So, yeah, another thing, like, I, I, you got to hand it to these activists. They're, they're certainly coming up with things to get attention. And I guess, I guess there's a lot of young people who feel very, very desperate these days. You know what that reminds me of? About, let's say, 15 or 16 years ago or so, uh, I was a manager of a health food store in Washington Heights in northern Manhattan. And it was a vegetarian store. It wound up being mostly vegan, but there did have some milk and yogurt, uh, non-vegan. And I was kind of the second fiddle there. And I just remember that I was tasked with throwing out all of the old yogurt and putting it in the toilet, flushing the toilet with all the old yogurt and then washing the containers and recycling them. And I like couldn't, it was, I was so disgusted by the whole thing and so angry that like the vegan had to do it, that I threw it all out. Like I didn't recycle it. I was so, uh, you know, which was probably, I should have just spoken up. Obviously I was just a little shy, I guess. And also it's not, it's not also, it's not ethical to be throwing out recyclable containers, but I got caught like they, the other person who worked there saw it and I got reprimanded for that. And I was like, I just think it's so gross. I mean, it's everything I stand against. And the owner like totally understood. He's like, why didn't you say that? Anyway, it's not exactly the same thing, but it, it reminded me of. Yeah. He was such a sweet guy, but I, it does bring up another interesting point. And I don't know I don't know exactly where this line is drawn, and I don't know what the truth is, but we all know that dairy products do go bad. They go bad a whole lot fast. Dairy, my dairy, I mean cow dairy, uh, a whole lot faster than plant-based dairy. But expiration dates are also very questionable, and another method by which uh, they they 
install obsolescence into their products and they they provide for products to be to be wasted not expiration dates really need to have a closer look taken at them but i i digress i digress as i so frequently do i saw a story about expiration dates the other day on like cbs sunday morning or one of those shows that I watch that are actually meant for 85 year olds, but I watch them. And like later that day, I needed to take a cold medicine because I have a nasty cold and it expired like, but it expired in like January. And I was like, okay, I'm going to take it. I'm just going to do it because I needed to. But the last time I looked through my cabinet to sort of throw away old medicines, there was one from the year 2000. And more was like, keep it, I'll use it. And I'm like, no, no. So anyway. Yeah, you've always been a fanatic about expiration dates. I'm kind of on the more side. Just, oh, try it. It'll be fine. What's the worst that'll happen? <laughs> All right. Before we get to our interview today, we just wanted to take a moment to remind people to vote. If you'd like to pause this and go register, if you're not registered yet, and then come back, then let us know on social media. Uh, tag us at Our Hen House that you registered to vote because of this, because of this announcement about it. And we'll give you some, some social media love, but that's not why you should register. You should register because we all need to vote. Absolutely. Thank you for that reminder. I mean, I am registered to vote, but if I weren't registered to vote, I would now be running out and registering to vote. I imagine a lot of our listeners are registered, but you know, it's easy to like, we've been reminding people of this for a few years because the situation has been so dire at every election And I think there might be a little less cognizance of the fact that the situation is right now very, very, very dire and we have to vote. Yes. Well, speaking of dire situations that are being addressed, I am a giant fan of the way our guest today is addressing the dire situation of animal exploitation. I think people are really going to love this one. You want to do the intro? Yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, this is a great, great interview. And like I said, if, if you can, check out the website as you're listening. Since 2008, Hartmut Kiewert has been dealing with the social-human-animal relationship in his art. His paintings open up counter-images to today's human-animal relationship, which is characterized by exploitation and repression. Perspectives of an equal coexistence of humans and other animals are anticipated. In addition to many solo exhibitions, his works have been shown in exhibitions such as Animal Transition, Food Futures Art, Art Genossen das Tier und Wir, Animal Lovers, We Animals, and Habitat, Wemgehort der Raum. How do you like my German pronunciation? Pretty good, right? Not bad. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, you don't know. So I'm going to assume it was Although great. I do speak Yiddish. I speak a little Yiddish. So if you know, like, <laughs> okay, you know, you're doing fine. Hartmut lives and works in Leipzig, Germany, and he will be joining Jasmine right after this. Greetings, listeners. Just a reminder that if you are a Flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up, or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month or $100 a year at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Also, if you are a Flock member, please join us for our Flock First Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern, where we have inspiring guests and great conversations about activism and animals and life in general. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out that Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. 
And if you write to info at ourhenhouse.org, you can also set up a one-on-one conversation with me too, which I hope you do because I always have a lot of fun and I want you to also. And thanks so much for joining us in our mission to change the world for animals. Bye. Welcome to our hen house, Hartmut. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm very glad to be here. Very excited to talk to you. Now, I know a podcast isn't the easiest place to discuss visual art. So can you just start out by describing your work, particularly the Animal Utopia series? Basically, it's about trying to to evolve a world or scenarios in which humans and and other animals encounter at eye level and where the animal exploitation industries is gone and ruined. Even though I call it animal utopia, it's not like I think this is like a blueprint for, for the utopia. It's just it's more like in the first place an irritation of common perceptions of so-called farmed animals mostly and just to bring them in, into into completely different contexts like in our everyday inner city urban life or in our living rooms and to to yeah to evoke irritation and and that's why i called it this work series animal utopia i think we, we need to talk about counter narratives and, and about possible utopian visions so without knowing everything about it but but i think it's really important to go on with that that does come through. I mean, your work is very powerful. And I think anybody, whether they're like, you know, down with animal rights or have never considered animal rights before would look at your work and have an immediate emotional reaction. And you've said that, I'm quoting you, you said, since 2008, I've been working intensively on the human-animal relationship and trying to renegotiate it with the means of painting. So, what do you hope people will think about when they see your paintings? I hope that if, if they are not already vegan or for <laughs> engaged for animal rights, I hope they, they will question their own perceptions of, especially, as I said, so-called farm animals, but also all other animals. And I can't say it for all, of course, because <laughs> I, I very rarely talk to people from time to time. I'm talking to people how they see and read my, my paintings. And I think there's a little bit that they are doing to do a shift in their relation to other animals. I hope so. It's like you can't, of course, really say I'm doing this and then this, this is the outcome. But I, I hope to be like a part of, of a bigger movement or bigger influences on people to to change their ways. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think that art has a special and unique way of doing that. That's why we love to talk to artists of all stripes, even though it's an audio podcast, because I think that one of the keys to social change and social awareness is the arts. It's what I'm personally most passionate about. Now, why did you decide not to depict the horrors that happen to animals? Like Suko comes to mind, for example, but instead yeah. to depict a better world. Actually, when I first started to engage in this the topic of human-animal relationships in my, my paintings, I did a lot of, of research and that was said in 2008, where I eventually went vegan. I was vegetarian before since 2000 and then slowly coming vegan, but some here and there ate some pizza with cheese and then I really did some researches and from that point on it was clear I can't do any exceptions anymore I have to be 100% vegan and to cope with that 
horror of, of the animal industries or what people do to to other animals i first had to paint paintings that that are like very direct and graphic and how to say that that were more like directly provoking or like directly reconnect the the animal bodies to the products of animal exploitation for instance mm -hmm. that's the series or this this kind of the first work series i call status quo so where just where we are now where, or where my work started from it was like Of course, not exactly the same as, as Hugo did or is still doing, but kind of similar. It's, so mm -hmm. that was the, the first approach and I couldn't come directly like to the next step and to think about how it could be better, how, how animals could be liberated from these exploitations. There was first the necessity to um, paint the, this, this kind of, of images. So I, I, I really started there. <laughs> yeah. Wow. We are so far from the utopia that you depict in your paintings. Why do you feel it's important to put it out there? The, the first thing is like to, to see what is going wrong in, in our society and to, to criticize that and to, to point it out and, and to, to scandalize it. But um, we also, as humans, we like stories and, and, and narrations. Yeah, we, we also need to talk about the positive change. If we like, it's the same thing like with the ecological crisis, with climate crisis. There are so many positive developments that will come when we overcome like this individual automobile traffic. And mm -hmm. we have to, I think, try to anticipate how we could change. And there's, of course, like projects like farmed animal sanctuaries, which are like... Yeah. Mm, concrete utopian spaces already mm -hmm. which are already trying to do something which is completely different for instance what you uh, donaldson and will kimlicka is doing doing with that approach to political theory and superlist and trying to to figure out how to how to change change relations and how to navigate in a positive direction without really knowing how it will be in the end because we are all like children of, of capitalism and, and patriarchy and so on right. and And we all have these things in our minds, so we can't do blueprints, but, mm -hmm. but we can yeah. start to talk about it and start to think about where to go. And maybe that's more motivating than, not more motivating, but that's also motivating, like the, the anger and the, and the sadness that comes from seeing these this horrible things that are happening to animals. For me, always is still the, the motivation what, what I'm doing. Especially when I talk to, to other activists in the animal rights, animal liberation movement, they also said that The imagery I do gives them also hope. So I really like <laughs> I have a very messy answer here, but no, it's good. I, hope, I, I hope mean, you know, it gives us a visual, right? And also, at its most basic levels, so many people who care about animals, when we're going to sleep at night, the images in our mind are often really dark and really painful. You know, they're the things that keep us up at night. And yet, yeah. you offer an antidote to that. You offer a visual that we can hold on to instead. And so I, I think that it's almost, it's almost a service you're doing to anybody who cares. And on that note, you have said that utopian images are important. You've said it's not enough to just criticize the existing systems in play today. We have to offer improved alternate realities. So do you think in light of the ever worsening reality of what we're doing to animals and to the planet that we run the risk of people forgetting the possibilities of what life on earth could be? Is it one of your goals to remind them? 
Sure. I mean, if we would like overcome all these systems of, of domination, also in between humans and, and like social justice issues, yeah, the possibilities are there. We, we, we have the knowledge, we have the compassion, and we are like trapped into this patriarchal capitalist forms. And mm -hmm. if we like blow that up, I think, yeah, there's, there's a really good potential and Even if it's sometimes hard, just now here in, in Germany, people are complaining about, oh, I can't fly in, in my vacation because there's not enough service personnel, people on the airport. Right. And I think, what the hell? I mean, we are in climate crisis. Yeah. There's no reason to fly in, into mm -hmm. vacations. You can do other things. And I mean, sometimes it's really frustrating. Also for me, it's sometimes hard to keep on this, this hope, but I think the potential is definitely there. We have to try I just read an article about airplane travel and the the carbon cost of it. And, you know, I knew that it was bad. It was like, it felt like the first time I learned about animals and factory farms. Suddenly, I was face to face with these numbers of just how bad it is. And certainly Europe is way ahead of the game. Uh, it is amazing how people get so set in their ways of like our consumption habits, whether it's like consumption of carbon or consumption of animal products. It's really unbelievable how unimaginative we can become. Like, can we think beyond these oppressive systems? Mm -hmm. Now, You've said that there are dangers in depicting utopia and that critical theory, quote, rightly points out that a brushing out of utopia, that is an all too exact definition of what a liberated society mm -hmm. should look like is to be refrained from, which is beautiful, by the way. What a beautiful turn of phrase. So what are those dangers and why did you decide to do it anyway? As I come from like an anarchist approach or like perspective that's critical to all forms of domination, if I would come up with like, okay, here's the plan, <laughs> here's the master plan and the blueprint, that would be like authoritarian as well. That can't be right. Like if, if your aim is, is real emancipation. So that's like a bit of a, of a contradiction or like of a um, tension between like doing it anyways but i think yeah you just have to be aware of that that we, we we don't know how how the possibilities of emancipation will evolve over time and maybe we can't predict that and it's a, it's a bit difficult but still it's more to to start or to motivate a dialogue or a debate about a, a positive future because mm -hmm. nowadays it's, i don't know <laughs> it's a lot said like People can imagine the end of the world, but they can't imagine the end of capitalism, for instance. So, and I think there's a lack of imagination here, lack of talking about what could be like also the, the advantages of, of changing our relations to each other and to, to other animals and nature and so on. Mm -hmm. Wow, there's a lot there. I like what you just said. We can imagine the end of the world, but not the end of capitalism. It's so true. How much of what is in your paintings is fantasy? And how much do you think is the way the world could actually be? A lot of parts, a lot of areas are um, picked from like everyday life or I, I walk around here in, in Leipzig and, and take some photos and I use them as reference or sometimes I just for the spaces or it's it's a bit easier to to just imagine or just evolve something that looks like it could be I'll say 
real. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it's not like a, a ready, complete utopian scene. If you think of, of images like people sitting on the street and there's there's asphalt and there, there are also pigs around there. And of course, you can imagine in a world which is also really comfortable for pigs, the asphalt is a problem. But there could be more spaces where they can dig in, in the ground. There's not a um, complete scenario of, of an, that, that's a, like a social, ecological and animal liberate mm -hmm. transformation has already completely happened. And then you got these images. They're, they're more like in between now and then. It's a, a bit of tension. And it's also because of this thing to, to not be too explicit about how it should look like or how it's It's, it's more like, okay, I just try things out and, and you can try to, to go further in, in the imagination or everybody who sees the images. And there's also people coming up with just that question. So why, why there's everything in concrete here? And maybe in, in further paintings, there will be more of like this transformation already be visible. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. So, of course, right now you're speaking to people who are like 100% behind you. And I'm sure that's not always the case. So can you tell us about some of the reactions that you've gotten to your paintings? Yeah, of course. Especially, of course, the older works, which were more graphic and more pointing out the, the violence against other animals. There's, of course, yeah, people distance themselves from that or like also... Yeah, I don't want to to start to, to thinking about that or I don't know. Everybody is different, of course. But if I think if you like very not conscious about what, what is going on with animals, everybody knows it, but but it's repressed. I think in the last few years I can see a change in, in, in how people also in the like in the art world, like besides like the, the vegan and animal rights, animal liberation scene also start to see the works and, and start to also to take them seriously. I think before it was like, we don't have to take that seriously. And I think there, there's a little bit of change going on there. Can just be a part of, of like more influences that bring people then to, to real change. Yeah. How do you account for the fact that people can see animals or, or paintings of animals and care about them and empathize with them and yet can participate in violence against them? <laughs> how do you do that, right? Like, how do you look at the Animal Utopia paintings and say, oh, wouldn't this be a beautiful world? And then go order a burger. Yeah, it's it's really hard hard to say what, what goes on in, in, in people's mind, but it's so divide between like here the humans and and mm -hmm. uh, all the other animals but there's really like a big big divide between that and to overcome this i think it's it's time it needs a different kind of, of approaches and and influences to the people and it's not like one action or like one painting i'm doing can can do all the work Of course, it's it's convenient, as you talked about in your in your more, most recent podcast. I guess that the people do that. What is like the most convenient to them, mm -hmm. and if, if if it would wouldn't be like cheapest way or most convenient way to eat food that contains animal exploitation products, they maybe wouldn't mind. Mm -hmm. but, but we also have to to consider this this point that it's also a very big part is changing or um, getting pressure on on the companies that profit from animal exploitation yeah. and, and doing political mm. pressure there. The psychological aspect of it is, is right. It's, it's really hard to, to say. But for me, it was like when I 
found out as, as when I was little where, where the where meat was coming from. And I, of course, didn't want to eat it anymore. I, I liked animals and and I didn't understand what was what was going on there. But my, my parents told me, no, it's, it's Melanie Joy coined the term, it's this kind of three ends. It's normal, it's natural, and it's necessary. I buy that as, as a child because I believe my, my, right. my parents. There was like a process for me as well. And, and everybody has to go to this process. And of course, back in the 80s, when I when I realized what was going on with, with mm -hmm. me and so on, it was a whole different scenario. I mean, there were no like uh, vegans and <laughs> and vegan options and so on. Uh, was And not and today, I think, can go a, a lot quicker. And it, sometimes it's really also an annoying how people still like trying to find some excuses and why they can't. And I don't know, it's sometimes also fr frustrating to see that. But still, yeah, I wasn't born vegan and I had to evolve. And yeah, yeah. so we have to, to be patient and, and doing pressure. So right. what maybe makes the most sense to us in, in, in a certain situation. Yeah, I also grew up in the 80s. And I remember, you know, as kids, we just have that innate thing. Like we we love animals, we don't want to hurt them. And, and somehow our parents became so adjusted to this idea that it is those three ends, as you just said. I had it with dissecting, which in retrospect, I don't even understand why like my third grade class was dissecting a worm, but I was like, absolutely not. No way. You know, and, and this is this is well before PETA had any kind of campaigns. I, I'm sure I didn't even know what a campaign was. So they did let me sit out from dissecting the worm. But, you know, when you think about it, if at that time we were able to actually embolden children and like give them the agency to see through their values rather than squelch them, maybe we would have a world closer to the animal utopia. Yes. You've, yeah. you've said that, I'm quoting you again, I, our researcher really enjoyed researching you, by the way. Like, we have so Thanks. many quotes from you. So you've said Thank that you. the social status of animals has played a role in visual art since the early cave paintings. On the other hand, art can question norms, power relations, and traditional conditions and reveal new perspectives. Are there many artists who are struggling with the animal issue in a revolutionary way? You, you mean if, if they also contribute their work to this kind of social struggle? Yeah, and maybe maybe their struggle is coming out in their work. You know, maybe they haven't yeah. quite gotten it yet. Yeah, I think I think as it is spoken of like an animal turn in the academia, I can see that in, in, in the arts as, as well. There are more and more artists caring about these questions and mm -hmm. um, and doing artworks that yeah, how human animal relations are shaped today. Especially for for the for the younger generation or even younger than we are, maybe like the phrase for future generation. I think they have a, a different approach where they they consider this already. All, a lot of them, a lot of those mm -hmm. people consider that this this kind of problems already. So as you said, when we just let children keep their compassion, you have so much stories of, of like yeah, children realizing what is going on with with meat, where it comes from, and mm -hmm. then they immediately want to stop eating it. So right, and and uh, like the way the ideology of carnism and, and speciesism is, it already has a lot of cracks, I think. So 
it mm-hmm, starts. Mm-hmm. I, I hope it starts slowly to to crumble down. Yeah, I hope so too. What What are you working on now? I'm working on on trying to include also the sea or water oh, wow. in, into into the uh, imagery, and still since maybe two or four years, I am also focusing on connect animal liberation with the transformation of, of mobility or transformation of transportation systems. As I don't know, in German, there's this term Verkehrswende, you know, which means like yeah, how mobility can be structured completely in new ways. If you think of, of small of, of, of young children, they can't really move the way they could or they want because they, they have to be held back or there's the street. And for the animals, the same. And you see so many really dangerous to other animals and to children to walk through our towns and cities. And I think if we take the idea of animal liberation and think about how it's the infrastructure and how the cities and, and towns should must be changed, then I think it's, it's absolutely clear that it's that we need to keep the cars out of it completely. And we also, because of climate change, we need more green, more trees, which is immediately like a new habitats for, for other animals and as well, a much better place to live for us. So that's like the, the, the images I am about to do things about connecting these, these ideas. They, they were already there <laughs> somehow that, that the animals came into the shopping malls or the, cafes and, and somehow reclaimed the streets or reclaimed the public space, like also another connection to, to, to the <laughs> climate crisis, which is obviously at the agricultural sector, but, but here as well, I think there's a <laughs> strong connection. Yeah. Wow. I love the idea of incorporating the sea here in the U.S. I swear every news program has something about someone getting attacked, quote unquote, attacked by a shark. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. oh my God, this is so one little piece of the story. I would love to see a utopia with like the sea life incorporated Mm -hmm. into it. So... Yeah, and I'm, I'm thinking about that longer. And of course, it's not our natural surrounding to be in, in water, of course. Yeah. So it's a bit harder to, <laughs> to paint, <laughs> to evolve, to evolve some scenarios, which, which include this as well. But we're trying to do as well. I, I did a lot of like this ruin thread, imagery thread with mm-hmm. um, ruins of, of slaughterhouses and so on. And I thought of, of like aquacultures as well, how to depict something like this. And mm-hmm. um, still I'm working on it and I don't know <laughs> if it will work out in the end. But uh, yeah, of course, it's also, I think, yeah, thing which is not considered so much. I was listening to an audiobook this morning about coaching, actually. And they were giving an example of Thomas Edison and how Thomas Edison would go fishing, but wouldn't have any bait on the pole. So obviously never caught any fish. It was just he he sat there with the pole to think Mm -hmm. and eventually came up with, you know, his great inventions. But it was kind of making the point of slowing down and I, I know that the point wasn't as literal as I was making it about, like, leave the fish alone. But I mm-hmm. loved the fact that, like, yeah, the reason a lot of people like fishing is because of the experience. Just like yeah. the reason a lot of people mm-hmm. like 
eating meat is because of the barbecue sauce put on it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if it's an animal flesh or if it's just like a piece of seitan with the same Mm -hmm. sauce on it. So maybe the utopia is sort of like humans sitting there while the fish are just coexisting. And instead of catching them, we're appreciating them and appreciating the time to unwind and think in that moment. It's like somehow there's a slogan, shoot photos, not animals. I mean, you can, there's a lot about all this hunting is to be about be connected with nature and so on. But I mean, it's just brutal and you can just be in the, in the woods and enjoy nature or enjoy the wood and, but you don't have to kill animals. And it's the same. Yeah. You can, yeah. Can be at a at the sea side or at the river and, and enjoy just being there and yeah and calm calm down. I also have to think of Janosch, which which is quite famous illustrator here in, in, in Germany. I don't know if, if you know it. I don't. Well. I think he has a illustration with someone who is standing at at water with a with an angle or how, how, what is called in English the thing where you catch the fish with the hook. It is saying that it it is looking quite good if someone is is standing there on the water with the thing, but mm-hmm. be careful that there is no hook on the end of the of on the of the rope because yeah uh, a fish could get hurt. <laughs> so right, that, exactly. That's like the same same thing as as you just said. I love that. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. So okay, switching gears. We hear a lot about the progress of veganism in Germany. Do you feel that attitudes toward animals are fundamentally shifting? Very slowly, too slowly, of course. As I said, I think uh, with, with the young generation, definitely there, there's yeah, a lot of people who refuse using animal products. We did a lot of vegan outreach over the last uh, decades or years. And of course, it also were successful and it's also still useful to do it. But we have to also get back to putting pressure on companies because if if you look at it at the meat industry or dairy industry in in europe without subsidies they would not work so actually like without the state puts in money into that companies they they couldn't they couldn't run probably like (laughs) under under market conditions same thing with a lot of (laughs) of destructive industries but but here uh, very much so we we have to to be active at this Mm -hmm. point Definitely. And of course, keep going on with, with the vegan outreach as well. But or maybe also the, the, the harder way. I mean, there's more like resistance because it's their profits to really threaten them, yeah. or to really confront them. It's maybe has more consequences as well mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, in the actions. But I think, yeah, we, we as a movement need to do that and some somehow. <laughs> okay. Well, it's funny because the perception here is that Germany is a bit of a vegan utopia. So just to let you know how we see it on the outside. Yeah. Like I just see a lot of interesting vegan companies popping up and, and vegan food being very mainstreamed. And so we're looking to you basically is the point. So, all right. I would love it if you would stick on for our bonus content. But before we do that, can you tell our listeners how they can see your work? And also, is it possible to buy your work online? Yes. So uh, you can find my work on hartmutkiewert.de or the English version is en.hartmutkiewert and also on, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and on Mastodon. 
So in the Fediverse, you find me as well. And you can you can buy prints on on my website as well. But unfortunately, only I ship only to to the European Union since like this month because postal service has stopped their like cheaper service mm. to ship to to the US as well or to other non-EU countries. But you can also order them via rootsofcompassion.org. And if you are interested in buying original artwork, then yeah, email me and yeah. Okay, we'll include all of that in the show notes. Do you know if Roots of Compassion ships to the US? I'm pretty sure they do. I, I'm, I think they, they ship worldwide. Yeah. Cool. All right, because your work is very beautiful. It's very powerful. Thanks. And it's also, you know, I do have some Suko prints in my house and also on my body. She designed one of my tattoos. <laughs> But it's sad. Like, I kind of want something that I look at and I'm like, oh, okay, that's what we're working towards. So I very much appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us today on our Hen House, Hartmut. It's very, very inspiring to talk to you. And I definitely encourage our listeners to take a look at your work. Click on the show note link and we'll keep you on the line for a minute. But I appreciate you talking to us. Thank you so much. And yeah, I really appreciate it. Jasmine here. Did you know that you can dedicate a podcast episode to someone you love? Cool, right? For $250, you can honor a loved one, human or non, and at the same time support our henhouse's efforts to change the world for animals. You can either record a 30-second special message that we'll play on the air, we'll just need an mp3 file, or you can send us the text you want recorded and we'll record it for you. To dedicate a podcast episode, simply let us know by emailing communications at ourhenhouse.org. And thank you so much for your support. By the way, since this is $250, it will automatically make you a flock member. If you have any questions about that, let us know in your email. Can't wait to hear from you. Anxiety surprising. This is from Watt Poultry. World Egg Day. Will the egg industry survive in 30 years? Wow, isn't that a great headline? <laughs> like, I, I hope they're as in bad shape as, as they seem to be worried that they are. This is talking about, it is specifically talking about a Latin American Egg Institute conference, but they're talking about World Egg Day. So I assume they're talking about whether eggs are going to survive everywhere. I, they, I don't know. And this is about a conversation with one Javier Prida, who is the coordinator of that institute. And uh, so they're having this conference, and there was a nutritionist who was giving a presentation on why eggs are good in all stages of life. I can't imagine that there's any bias in this, you know. And then another guy giving a presentation on why we should be eating two eggs per day. Are you sure that's enough, guys? And the, the author of this particular column, uh, Benjamin Ruiz, is, is, thinks it's a good effort and that just a couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine told me how his son's pediatrician was telling him, quote, to avoid consuming chicken and eggs because of hormones and all the chemicals used in their production, unquote. Well, that's good news. I'm glad to see the pediatricians are doing a good job. But the worst, said this guy, Javier Prida, who's running this conference, is that now there are more and more vegan nutritionists, nutritionists that actually got a college degree in nutrition. Don't most nutritionists have a college degree in nutrition? 
Uh, yeah, well, I guess they're pretty well educated if they're vegan. Uh, many groups seem to be winning the battle. This article continues. It is not nice to compare this to a war. You know, now you know he's going to compare it to a war. But we can all have the artillery, weapons, bullets, and bombs. But in the underground, these groups are bombing our events through social media, wrecking restaurants, not using cage-free eggs, wrecking restaurants, not using cage-free eggs, and so on. And no one responds. This is obviously so, so made up. It's just so obviously false. Uh, so the article com uh finalizes with this sentence. Companies question campaigns and are reluctant to economically participate. At this rate, we will disappear in 30 years. That is just my favorite article for a long time. All right, this is an article. This is not, this is about rising anxieties, not an evidence of rising anxieties because it's what it's by Brian Cateman, who's a contributor at Forbes and has been a guest on the podcast. And, and he, he advocates for reducitarianism. So a lot of people like but great article. Why do food waste advocates give meat a pass? And this is something we know a lot about. And it's actually an extremely informative article if you don't know a lot of the stats and all of the information. But I just wanted to point out that uh, the whole idea that there's all this food waste that goes into the production in meat and dairy, etc., is just it's not within people's consciousness when they talk about food waste. And there is deliberate effort, apparently, to keep it out of their consciousness. Well, that's not surprising. So as Brian points out, the image that comes to mind when we think about food waste, i.e. tossing out good food for no good reason, is hardly a blip when compared to the wastefulness of the meat industry. You know, this is bringing to mind that recent milk protest in the UK where they were pouring milk onto the floor of grocery stores that we had spoken about. And, and yeah, like, like people were so completely scandalized by that waste of food. And everybody that I know of was pointing out, do you know how much waste of milk there is? So this is a similar kind of issue about food waste in general. They're always talking about what gets thrown out. They just ignore the fact that unbelievable amounts of food gets wasted in the production, particularly of animal foods. So this article points out, even under optimal circumstances, the production of meat per calorie requires considerable inputs to get any output whatsoever. Specifically, in the case of chicken, it takes nine calories of feed to produce one calorie of meat for the end consumer. So we're wasting food, even without waste, even without what, what is wasteful practices, uh, which there are plenty of, but he's, that's not even what he's talking about. Even just the, if you're doing it as efficiently as you can, it's still unbelievably wasteful. The article points out a third or less of calories and protein contained in feed make it to people as meat. A third. There's loads and loads of other stats in here, which I'm not telling you, but so it's a good article to look up if you're not familiar with these issues. The article goes on to say, it's hard to blame individuals for not realizing any of this. Actually, I blame individuals, but you know, that's just me. Given that even major food waste nonprofits skirt the issue entirely, this is really this is really why I wanted to tell you about this article. Refed, one of the larger and more recognizable organizations that focus on reducing food waste, makes an alarmingly misleading point on their website. They say that compared to produce, seafood and meats are the most expensive food types and the two least wasted. Yeah, just because it doesn't get thrown in the garbage as much doesn't mean that not there's not enormous amounts of waste in its production. Like I, this article is just such a good uh, 
putting together this issue in, in this really useful way. So I highly recommend it. He's also uh, quoting uh, this uh, Dr. Jillian Fry, who's with Towson University. And uh, she points out that uh, in a paper she recently published, our analysis of newspaper articles revealed robust collaborations and available funding for organizations working to reduce food waste. And journalists frame the issue as important and non-controversial. At the same time, coverage of the need to shift diets toward plants for sustainability often frame the issue as though it is open for debate, despite overwhelming evidence of the need to shift diets in high-income countries to address climate change, overuse of resources, and water pollution. Yeah, well, not surprising, but still really upsetting, isn't it? Yeah. Finally, the, is about Oatly. The oat milk backlash has begun. This is this ridiculous column from Eater, which apparently does a lot of ridiculous columns about food. Like most plant-based milks, including almond milk and rice milk, Oatly was initially touted as a more delicious way to consume milk that doesn't come from a cow. That's exactly what it is. So the touting was correct. Then, you know, they, they point out it, it just it was having its moment. It was seemingly ideal for the ever-increasing number of people who eat vegan, people with lactose intolerance, and others who eschew dairy. And it came with the climate change concerns that followed other alternatives like almond milk. Came without the climate change concerns that followed other alternatives like almond milk. You know, they would love to keep Oatly and other plant-based milks to vegans, people with lactose intolerance. But, you know, the fact is, is that everybody started drinking these these milks. And I know it, you know, it went way, way up in price. And then, and now the, the stocks are not doing that as well. But, you know, that's just, that's just part of the process. Uh, but so they want to find things that are wrong with Oatly. Um, ethical concerns surrounding Oatly. First came a massive investment in the company from Blackstone, an investment firm helmed by a major Trump donor that's been accused of engaging in extensive deforestation in countries like Brazil. Now hold the phone here. <laughs> like I, I'm not going to say anything in favor of this company, but this doesn't make Oatly responsible for extensive deforestation, like just because the same company that put money into Oatly does all these horrible things. Like, uh, that's ridiculous. Then a UK regulator banned some of the company's ads for making environmental claims that it couldn't back up with research. I, we covered that story at the time. I thought it was ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. And they had trouble fulfilling demand. Well, it doesn't sound like that big a problem for a company. They were selling, it was selling so well that they had trouble with their supply chain. Uh, you know, foods, oats apparently had, you know, food is becoming a lot dicier to get a hold of. So that's probably going to occur. Then apparently there was a much publicized, uh, it may have been much publicized, but I didn't hear about it, voluntary recall of Oatly products, among other beverages, over concerns of bacterial contamination. Well, you know, that sounds bad, but like it is the kind of thing that happens. Like, I don't know. I didn't even hear about it. All right. In 2021, though. New York Magazine dug into why so many people were ordering cow's milk at fancy coffee shops again. They were, they are, I don't know. In, in every coffee shop I go into, everybody's ordering plant-based. Well, not everybody, but a hell of a lot of people are. Noting that some of the people interviewed were ordering in a rebellion of sorts from the oat milk obsessed monoculture. Now, hold the phone. <laughs> like what? What? So people are worried that oh, they're selling so much oat milk that they're ordering dairy instead. Uh, this is nonsensical. 
Many consumers likely realize that there is no morally right or virtuous choice when it comes to drinking milk. Wow, now they're really getting to the point. Now they're really getting to the point. All right, there are these couple of things like, you know, that I don't like about Oatly. So that means oat milk is bad. So that means, you know, everything's got problems. So why not just drink dairy? That is really the conclusion they're saying. Uh, Every single option is going to have some sort of boogeyman that the diet industrial complex can exploit. At the same time, many people also want to feel freedom from an obligation to make the right choice for the climate, for the planet, for their health, when they're doing something as simple as deciding what to mix with their coffee. Do they really? Maybe they do. Like, it's such an obligation. Oh, I have to have oat milk with my coffee? Like, I have to worry about the climate and my health and the planet. My life is so hard. Apparently, that's what they're talking about. They might be right. I don't know. And of course, the article goes on, there are plenty of consumers who have and will continue to use plant-based milks, like vegans and those who are lactose intolerant. (laughs) Oh, they really hate that other people are are heading this direction, isn't there? But for a while, choosing oat milk could be categorized as a virtuous choice, whether you were doing it for the environment or simply to eat, quote, healthier. And that just doesn't really seem to be the case anymore. In 2022, hot girls drink cow's milk, an outcome that seemed unfathomable just a few years ago. Wow. Wow. All I can say is, wow. (laughs) And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. for this week's show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be thrilled to have you join the flock by going to ourhenhouse.org slash donate and signing up for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you're always welcome to make any size donation you're comfortable with. You can also support us by leaving a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. You could also leave us a review on Facebook. And if you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast, to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our amazing logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week. 